0: As a b- brief review, what we are doing in this current series is beginning to identify the who, what, why, where, when, how of the Philadelphia church which will soon appear. And we started in on defining the leadership thereof, which is actually quite a story. So we've been through quite a bit already and uh, just a quick reminder that in Revelation 11:4 and Zechariah 4:14, 4, speak of the two anointed ones. The only places the end-time anointed are mentioned. <clears throat> so the Zerubbabel and Joshua of Haggai and Zechariah are the two witnesses, uh, and it shows there, of course, in Revelation 11 uh, that they go on to preach to the world as a witness. So it's very clear that uh, Haggai and Zechariah and the story there is combined with Revelation uh, 11 to give us a clearer picture of what must be. We'll get more to the story of what uh, later on, but let's go on more with who will lead that. Now let me Encapsulated a little bit for you here, and it might make it easier to follow the story uh, by showing who uh, it typifies. Who? Witness number one, the first one, and the one who will be the leader of the two, is depicted in Haggai and Zechariah as Zerubbabel, who started the temple and will finish it. So that's witness number one. Uh, we also saw in uh, Malachi 4 and in Matthew 17 with the transfiguration, the Moses is also included. In Malachi 4, it shows there when the Son of Righteousness is preparing his jewels and will shake the earth and will then appear. So there will be a Moses type involved <coughs> as one of those leaders. And it mentions Moses and Elijah there. So witness number one is the greater uh, light, Moses. And we will also see that Elijah is eclipsed by Elisha. So Elisha is also uh, in type the number one witness. And then, of course, Christ himself we will find that the first witness is also a type of Christ himself. Now, the second witness is cast with Zerubbabel as Joshua, the high priest. So the high priest would then be the leader of the ministry, the highest position in the ministry, under Zerubbabel, just as Moses had Aaron under him, and the second witness is also Uh, A type of Aaron, and also of the Joshua who led Israel into the promised land. You see, Moses, when he reached the end of his life, was not allowed to go in, so he sent Joshua and Caleb out ahead of time to check out, uh, to prepare the way for Israel to go in. So uh, Moses was the greater figure, but Aaron and Joshua were there as his right-hand men, Aaron at first, and later Joshua, who took them on into the promised land. So, and then Elijah is uh, typed by the second witness as well. John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ, just as Elijah prepared the way for Elisha. And just as Zerubbabel will prepare the way for Christ again, but Joshua, the second witness, prepares the way for the type of Christ Zerubbabel. And they both then prepare the way for Christ. The story changes somewhat. So the first witness you can recognize is Zerubbabel, Moses, Elisha, and Christ. And we'll see that clearly as we go, but I want to point it out ahead of time, and it might help you put the story together better if you already know uh, what the types are. So then the second witness is a type of Joshua, uh, Aaron and of Joshua, and is recognized as a high priest, also of Elijah and John the Baptist. (coughs) So today... I want to go into uh, Moses because he is the strongest type of Christ by far of the men uh, who have preceded the end time. Moses, I don't, I'm not going to go through everything about Moses like I did Elijah uh, Moses is mentioned 858 times in the Bible. So I don't want this series to go on into next feast. Uh, very, very prominent is Moses in the Bible story. So uh, let's see some parallels between him and Christ himself. Moses was hidden from Pharaoh. He was put into the bulrushes, and Christ was taken into Egypt, or Mitzrium, to be hidden from Herod. Because in both cases, Pharaoh and then Herod would attempt to kill all the males in order to get Moses and Christ. So from the very beginning, uh, they have a parallel story there. Moses' name means drawn out, or saved from. And he was saved from death to grow up in the courts of Pharaoh, to be involved in the middle of sand in Egypt, and then later on, after preparation, he would deliver Israel. As a parallel, when Christ was threatened by Herod, the angel told him, Moses, uh, Joseph, and Mary to take him into Egypt, into sand. So, the firstborn were killed, and then later on, he was drawn out of Mitzrayim, or Egypt, and back to the Promised Land, where he would do his work. So, Moses, by name, means drawn out. Christ went into sin, and then was drawn out of it. And, of course, that depicted what he would do later in life. He came out of sin, or Egypt, to save Israel. And others. He came to save all sinners, including Gentiles. Now, when Moses brought Israel out of sin, or Mitzrayim, there was a mixed multitude that went up with Israel. So Christ came first to the Jew, and secondarily to the Gentile, just as Moses' main uh, mission was to Israel but also included a mixed multitude of Gentiles who came out with them. So the, the parallel is very, very close, even from the very beginnings. Uh, Christ came and lived in the court of Satan, did he not? Until the time came for him to do his ministry, and even it came uh, under satanic and worldly rule, and the worldly rulers were against him. So he died that Israel might be saved, and Moses also died, and Israel was saved after his death, brought out by Joshua. We'll get to that a little later on. Now, I'm sort of encapsulating the story. We know it quite well, I'm sure better than we did of Elijah, and certainly of Elisha. But you have the plagues that came on Egypt in preparation to get Israel out of that land which represented sin. Uh, And we also have Christ who will send the seven last plagues to destroy sin at the end of the age. We also have the two witnesses... uh, calling on or calling for plagues wherever and whenever they so choose, and to turn water into blood and not to have rain is Elijah. So <clears throat> the parallel between Christ and Moses continues there with the plagues which kill off a lot of people and Israel is delivered, living the remnant living on into the millennium. We also have the Passover, which God directed Moses to institute. And, of course, late Christ became the Passover. So Moses was the one that God used to institute all these things that pointed to Christ. So he was the main one there. He wasn't the spokesman. Uh, Aaron became that because Moses complained he stuttered or couldn't speak well. So he used Aaron, who was the high priest, to do the speaking, to tell the story, uh, to literally say it. Uh, Now, what happened at Passover? God intervened and saved the firstborn, because the firstborn of the world would die. So with the blood on the doorposts... uh, They were passed over and their firstborn lived. Now Christ also is going to destroy those of this world and He will save out of it the firstfruits. We'll get to the story about how He saves the church in the end time and He then causes the firstborn to enter into the kingdom of God. So firstborn, firstfruits... Christ also is the firstborn of many brethren, so we also are termed firstborn. He was the first of the firstborn, first of the firstfruits. They then had those days of unleavened bread coming out from sin, seven of them, starting after midnight on Passover evening, seven days to come out of sin, pictured by Mitzrayim. Just as God has given us time after our conversion to put sin out of our lives, to come out of sin, and they were then baptized in the Red Sea, just as we begin to come out of sin and realize we need help from God and are baptized, and the Bible even depicts coming through the Red Sea as a baptism, going through the water. And God gave His Spirit to... didn't become begotten of it at that time. And it doesn't say that in the Old Testament record. But God's Spirit obviously was with them, and Christ, or Melchizedek, was with them in the wilderness. So, we become baptized, and in the New Testament, of course, by the laying on of hands, receive the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, begotten of it, so that we can be born into the kingdom of God. Now, the Red Sea parted and then closed over and drowned the Egyptians in a flood. We find that in Revelation 12, uh, Satan will be cast down so that he can no longer accuse the brethren, and he will come after the brethren then. He'll come after the church and try to destroy it. And what does the end of Revelation 12 say? that he will send a flood, probably typified as an army, but still a flood to destroy God's people as they are taken to a place of safety, and God saves them from the flood. So a flood is depicted. He could have said an army just as easily there in Revelation 12, but the type needs to carry forth. The flood of the Red Sea, killing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and a flood, again, it was a flood and army, but it was an army that was going to do the killing, uh, not the actual water itself. So here at the end, it will also be an army, not water itself. Now in the wilderness, they wondered what they would have to eat and to drink. And they immediately began to murmur as soon as they got there because they were thirsty. And what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Became prominent questions. They were physical. All right. God gave them water. And what did Christ say he is? He is the living water. So the type is perfect there. Then he sent manna which was a form of bread, tasted like wafers. And they didn't know what it was, so they called it, what's it? Manna means, what's it? All right, let's see, what's it? It's the bread of life, the body of Christ. So the type is perfect there as well. And we understand, what's it, becoming the body of Christ, because Christ explains that to us and says, I am the bread of life. So they had bread that gave them life in the Old Testament, Christ gave spiritual life in the New Testament. I realize this is remedial, we know this story, but we need to understand that Moses' type carries through in the end time because Moses did the same things Christ would do later and the same things that the type of Christ, the rubbabel, will also do here in the end time. And as we get into that story, we'll see these parallels. But I wanted to go back to the originals so we might see the story and see how, when we get into the end time scriptures or prophecies, we'll see how they all fit together better. Now, what spawned this... I had no intention of going through this story in detail during the feast. But when I received the information that clearly established who Thyatira and Sardis were, uh, then it became imperative to determine who Philadelphia really is as opposed to who everybody thinks they were or are. So, uh, that's what led to this series And I think it's important for us to understand of the who, what, why, where, when, and how of Philadelphia because it's the next thing that will come up on the radar. So Christ is the bread of life. He's the living waters. And then He actually also gave them meat, gave them quail. What did Paul say? He says, I would like to give you meat, strong doctrine but I have to give you milk. Now, Christ gave them meat. And at some point, we have to be able to take meat, not just milk. We have to grow spiritually to the point we can digest meat. So He gave them those three things out there. Bread, water, and meat. The meat of strong doctrine is important for us to understand. Now, Moses also built the tabernacle, did he not, in the wilderness? Let's go to Hebrews 8 for a moment. Hebrews 8. Uh, And here I want uh, verse 5. Now, this is talking about the high priest, Christ himself, of course. Uh, a minister. Well, let's go back at the beginning of verse, chapter 8. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So not just Aaron, who was the physical high priest, but now we have Christ as the high priest. <coughs> a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the eternal pitched... And not man. So, man pitched the one in the wilderness, Moses did, but Christ was pitched by God, who became the tabernacle. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So, you remember the sacrifices and everything that God instituted through Moses for Aaron to do, along with the Levitical priesthood. So they had something to offer there in terms of sacrifices offered to God. So he says the heavenly high priest also has to have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. It would be a duplication if Christ were here for him to do Sacrifices and offer gifts to God, because there's already a ministry here to do that. Verse five: Who serve to the example and shadow of heavenly things. So he says, the men in the Old Testament priesthood and the men in the New Testament priesthood or ministry, and there is one, by the way, Joshua in Zechariah three is called the high priest. translated into ministry in the New Testament. So those are a shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. So Moses had a definite plan to follow that God had given And he says that the things that Moses did there were a shadow of things to come. So that shows that there was a type there that would then be brought forward to the New Testament. Well, what did Christ do? He raised up a tabernacle, a church, a temple, if you will, Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock himself, he would build a church, but Peter, the smaller rock, would head it up as a physical human being. And in Ephesians two twenty, it shows that he built the temple or the church, and he was himself the chief cornerstone. So there, there are many other scriptures to show that. <coughs> but here in Hebrews 8, we have it strictly pointed out <coughs> that what Moses did was a shadow of what Christ would do. So there's a direct connection of of Moses being a type of Christ. You'll also note if you do a word study on Moses and go through uh, the New Testament, the Gospels, uh, my Bible program uh, shows the quotes of Christ in red, uh, and Christ quoted Moses a great deal because Moses was his forerunner and fulfilled a lot of things that Christ himself would do and said a lot of things that Christ would say. So Christ quoted Moses. Makes sense. Now, one of the primary things that's mentioned over and over and over through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that God used Moses to go up on Sinai, and he delivered his law through Moses. So Moses became a type of Christ there in the sense that it was God's law, God and Christ's law, but they delivered it by the hands of a man. God does things through men. He always has. Now, that was a law given with physical promises if they kept that law of going into the promised land, of inheriting the land, and having blessings from God so long as they obeyed that law and that covenant that was given at Sinai. Of course they didn't, and they went into captivity and had all kinds of troubles and difficulties because they wouldn't keep it. And then Christ, who had typified his relationship with Israel as a marriage, divorced Israel because she had gone whoring after other nations, other peoples. And he divorced Israel before he died. Now, Christ came, and when he began his ministry, what did he first do? After he was tempted of Satan and began to teach, one of the very first acts he did was give the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, not to the world, not to the multitudes, but to his disciples. Remember, He went up into the mountains to be alone with them. The crowd may have begun to gather, but He he was going to give the upgraded law to His disciples, just as He has only revealed it here in the end time to a few, or actually we could say many, that He has called, and out of them He's choosing a few to be a remnant. But Christ gave over again the law, did he not? He said, this is the law given to you by Moses, but now you not only don't do these sins, you don't even think them. If you think it, it's tantamount to doing it. That doesn't mean that we can use reverse psychology on ourselves and say, I thought it, I might as well do it. Uh, That's justification of sin, uh, which is not right. But, Uh, In Moses' law, you could think it as long as you didn't do it. Now, I don't know how you... Covetousness is a a sin of the mind, really, and it was in the original law as well. So I think the implication there, really, from the beginning, was you're not supposed to even think sin. uh, But Christ made it very clear in the New Testament that if the thought of sin is sin in itself. So He raised the law to a higher level. He also gave His Holy Spirit to give us help to keep the higher level of law. And He also gave us better promises. That of salvation and eternal life. To be part of a bride of Christ whom He will take at His coming because ancient Israel failed as a bride, as a wife. So the problem was not with Christ or Melchizedek, it was with the bride herself. And this time, he is training the bride, putting her through trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty, uh, and everything you can name, in order to test her and to try her. And as I was saying up at Zion the other day, to come to the point he can absolutely trust her that she will never, ever betray him, as Satan and the fallen angels have. He wants to be sure that his government, his kingdom, will remain forever and ever with no further defections or rebellions. The whole history of mankind is rebellion, from Adam and Eve right on down until today. And that has to be stopped. So God gave you a mind similar to that of Satan. And he said, overcome it, and then I can trust you with eternal life and know that you will not rebel against me ever, evermore. Not only will I have put you through the test, then I will take away the carnal human mind that is drawn to sin and give you an uplifting mind like he has that tends upward instead of downward like the human mind. So we have the experience to draw on knowing we never want to go back to what we've experienced on this earth plus a mind that doesn't pull us down anymore like the mind of Satan and our carnality does. So Moses was a type of Christ there. But how long did it take Israel to rebel? Even while he was on the mount getting the law, they were already breaking it. It isn't that the law was not already known, it was. Adam and Eve knew the rules. Uh, Cain knew the rules before he killed his brother. So they were known, and God had given them, I'm sure, orally to Adam and Eve uh, at some point. But they were codified and written down as the law of the land when Moses delivered them from Sinai, straight from the hand of God. So you see again how clearly Moses was a type of the Christ who would come. Now, because of the tantrum that Moses threw over striking the rock, he died. Now, the parallel isn't exact, but Christ died as well. Now, what happened after Moses died? God had appointed another leader to take Israel into the promised land. Now, when Christ died, He became eligible to take spiritual Israel and ultimately physical Israel into the millennium, into the promised land. So, the type is good again there. And in the end time, Zerubbabel is the leader of the two. Joshua is the high priest, uh, just as Moses uh, dominated over Aaron. The same is true in the end time as well. Interestingly, Moses parted the Red Sea. Well, God did it, but we used Moses as the human leader there as an instrument. But God is the one who sent the wind who parted the waters. Uh, Joshua did a lesser work, in terms of magnitude, I guess you'd have to say, by parting the Jordan River at flood time. Now that in itself was also a major thing to do. Uh, Flood level, it's a raging torrent. And God was able to back the water up and allow the Israelites to again go across uh, the rocks on land, not water. They couldn't have crossed the Jordan at high water. You can't cross uh, the, uh, the Virgin River up here in high water in the spring either. You'd be swept away when it's raised at its highest level. So the same thing was true there. Now let's see also that Elijah, we already covered yesterday, parted the Jordan. And he and Elisha walked across, and then we'll see again that Elisha turned around and tried his wings and parted at it again, and he walked across. So the two witnesses are going to be doing the same kind of thing in the end time that both Moses did and Elijah and Elisha did. <coughs> and take the people into the promised land. Now, Aaron had been the high priest, and somewhere died in the wilderness. But Joshua, Joshua then became Moses' right-hand man. And it came time, when they came to the Jordan, to cross into the promised land, and Moses sent Joshua and Caleb in to spy out the land, to check it out, to see if it was feasible, to see perhaps uh, what they would need to do to take the land, and so on and so forth. And all the spies that they sent in, well, he sent Joshua and Caleb, but he sent others as well, I think it was twelve. But only two reported that this was doable. I think we'll find a parallel in the end time where this same kind of thing was done, and some who will be sent out will say this can't be done, and only one or two will say, yes, it can be done. So God then selected Joshua, who was closer to Moses than Caleb was, to lead Israel into the promised land, to cross the Jordan, to part the Jordan, Jordan, and then to perform a miracle at Jericho by marching round and round and round, and then the walls would fall. So again, it wasn't something that Joshua did. It was something that God did. All they did was march and blow trumpets. uh, And then God caused the walls to fall down. So, in any of these things that we are examining, when things happened, realize it is always from God. Man can do nothing. Even Christ himself, when he was on the earth, said, I, of myself I can do nothing. It was all from his Father in heaven. So, even though some of these men, quote unquote, did exploits, it was really the exploitation done by God, not by man. He just used human instruments to direct it, to lead the people into it, and then God did the marvelous works and wonders. That has always been true, and it will be true here in the end as well. Even, he even says that there in Revelation, I will give power to my witnesses. They of themselves would be killed immediately. First thing, Bang. But God gives power and protection, so it all comes from God. It isn't something done by man. I mean, even Jonah got swallowed. Well, a fish swallows you, and what happens? You die. Jonah would have died there except for God's protection. God kept him alive. God wanted him to still do the job that he had given him to do. It doesn't pay when God tells you to do something to back off or quit or run or anything of that nature. You have to do what God says or you find yourself in trouble. (coughs) Those lessons are all in there for us as we see the end of this age bearing down upon us. We have to be committed. We have to know what we will do. And we have to put God first and His work first. And anything of ourselves and humanness, we have to set aside if it comes into conflict with what God is doing. So as we see things happen, we have to adjust our lives accordingly. Okay, so Moses was alive and he sent Joshua and Caleb and the others in. And they prepared the way and two came back and said... We can do this. Now let's go to Hebrews 11 for a moment. Uh, Moses is mentioned all the way through the Bible. And again, let's not examine it all, but we know the story of Moses fairly well. But here in the uh, faith chapter, Hebrews 11, uh, let's begin in verse 23 and read the story of Moses encapsulated here to show what he did. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So God chose parents for Moses who could think for themselves, who realized that they were in a land that was ruled over by a dictator, by a Pharaoh. And yet, even in the ignorance that Israel had lapsed into, where they didn't even know who God truly was, and said, who is this God, Moses, that you were leading us to? But there must have been some who had a certain memory of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Joseph, who had brought, had come into Egypt, and then Jacob had of course brought the seventy people Uh, which then became a huge tribe of Israel as they grew in Egypt. So there must have been some understanding among some of the people (coughs) because those three did not fear. They decided, we're going to save our son regardless. So they went up against the powers that were. Just as we, in the end time, are going to have to go up against the powers that be. We'd better be prepared for that. I know people use Romans 13 to say, well, you're supposed to do everything the authorities tell you. Well, that's not exactly what that means. It means we need to honor, to obey the powers that be, so long as they do not cause us to do anything contrary to what God would have us do. Acts 5.29, obey God rather than man. So, when it comes to a conflict, we are to to follow the, the rules, basically, of the powers that are. But when they come to the point that there's a conflict, we obey God and we forget about man. We don't care. Did Christ defy the Romans? Did Paul defy the Romans? Yes, they did. Because they had to do God's work. Did John the Baptist defy Herod? Well, he was pretty well on a friendly basis with Herod, who gladly accepted the things that John the Baptist said. But Herodias, his wife that he had married, who had been his brother's wife, took exception to it. And she was the queen. But John the Baptist stood against that power that was and said, no, Herod, you can't have her for your wife. And he lost his head. <clears throat> but you know where John the Baptist is going to be? will be in the kingdom of God. So, they defied Pharaoh's order, is what it amounts to, to save someone who was going to be important in Israel. <clears throat> By faith, Moses, verse 24 When he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He'd been raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He'd been in the court of Pharaoh throughout his entire life. But when it came to a choice, he killed the Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew. And then he ran for his life and got further training, burning bush, etc., out in the wilderness... And then he came back to deliver Israel. So, he walked out on being a prince. The son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was very, very high in the hierarchy. But he walked out on that. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There's a choice The end time here, we all have to make, is it not? Rather than going out and enjoying the pleasures of sin in this world that's bent on any kind of pleasure, we choose to come with God's people and help and encourage and strengthen one another (coughs) so that we might be a part of God's kingdom. And we suffer affliction as God's people. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. So, following Christ became a reproach. A reproach of the world around him. Just as we are a reproach to the world, even though we've been appointed to be a light to the world. But they don't like the light, they like the darkness. So, they don't like us, since we represent light and they will come and persecute. There's no doubt about it. They'll try to kill every last one of us. Read Revelation, read Daniel. That's going to happen. Only a remnant is going to be spared and protected. So he esteemed the reproach of Christ, the persecution, the affliction, the torment, uh, the trials, the troubles, the tribulation, the... Frustration and difficulty of overcoming and all those things we are called upon to do as we live in this world. For he had respect to the recompense of the reward. And is that not what keeps us going? We see the reward ahead. We see eternal life as a possibility. So that keeps us going in spite of everything. By faith he forsook Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So he had faith in God whom he could not see, just as we do. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And we've already discussed the parallel of uh, the firstborn and the firstfruits that Christ is preparing for himself, and he will protect them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the uh, uh, Mitzriamites, assaying to do, were drowned. So he uses the same encapsulation here that we have already been over in the first part of this sermon to show what Moses did, and the parallels between what he did and what Christ did are so very, very clear. He mentions one more act, verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. So he mentions Moses first and uses most of the time here to describe what Moses did because it was greater by far. All Joshua did in that sense was part Jordan and lead Israel across and then through the marching God knocked the walls of Jericho down. Now, he also drove out the inhabitants of the land and other cities fell before the Israelites and so on. But the magnitude of the story is nowhere nearly so great as that of Moses. So Moses is a much stronger type here. Okay. It should become be becoming quite clear that Moses is a type of Christ. Then if you combine that with Malachi 4, where Moses is prominent in the end time, uh, just before the end of the age, and also in the transfiguration, which the disciples took to be millennial, but really was not. They thought since Moses and Elijah were there, the first resurrection must have occurred, so let's build booths. But Christ said no, and the Father said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the point was not the millennium. The point was Christ is a greater uh, light, a greater leader than Moses and Elijah. Moses being a type of Christ and Elijah being a type of John the Baptist to come and Joshua at the end. Now, Elijah did a work before Elisha. Elijah is clearly shown as being a type of John the Baptist. And wasn't it a strange request in a way I mentioned yesterday that Elisha says, give me double your spirit. Give me double the power. And then God did that. He saw Elijah disappearing. So Elijah was there, in that sense, to do a work for Elisha, who is also a type of Christ. Elijah preparing the way for Elisha to come. And we will examine Elisha's life and his works and see how they parallel to a great degree that which Christ did uh, many of the many, uh, or some of the, uh, the, the uh, miracles he did were the same miracles Christ did I think I'll save that for tomorrow we're getting close to time to stop and I've been going a little over time during the feast here some so maybe I'll let you out a little earlier today Uh, And then we'll continue with a longer story tomorrow. Uh, Like I say, I could have spent sermon after sermon going through all the life of Moses and showing more, but the major parallels, I think, are there enough to show us how he did what Christ would later do in greater degree. So there is definitely a type there, and... We need to understand that in some detail, so when we see the description of Zerubbabel in the prophecies, clearly one of the two witnesses, we'll see that the story of Moses and the story of Christ parallel very closely what Zerubbabel is commissioned to do and will do. So, identifying the leaders of Philadelphia is kind of around Jones's barn to get there, But these types are so strong, and they're in Scripture, and we need to understand, because this is almost upon us, and is going to be happening, and as a result, we need to know ahead of time, forewarned is forearmed, and the story needs to be out there uh, as well, for those who will come across it later on, when God has done these things in the end time. So... Let's stop there for today then, and we'll pick the story up with a different entity tomorrow.